Time goes so quickly. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, um, move to let me make a few comments about um, the, the identity crisis and neglect of self-care because I will, I'm going to come back to the self-care issue later after I, when I talk about stress and burnout, especially when I talk about burnout. Stress and burnout are not the same thing. They are totally separate things and you don't finish well if you burn out. You don't finish well if you stress out. So I will come back to that. <clears throat> um, I'm probably going to go for about 20 minutes, John, and then I'll hand back to you, if I may. Uh, <clears throat> I want to say something about the identity crisis, but this, this applies mainly to Christian leaders and pastors. Uh, we, we are seeing a, a crisis, and what we call it, but it's, it's known as an identity crisis, uh, particularly amongst pastors. It is very easy in Christian work for your identity, who you are as a person, to become wrapped up in what you do. Uh, it's called, you, you, you see the phrase, it's called role immersion. You become so immersed in your role that it begins to define your identity. Now, all of us to some extent experience that role immersion. The problem comes though when you take the role away, when you retire, you get sacked. Just illustrate, um, at age 62 I decided that I didn't want to be the dean anymore, I wanted to get a life. Being a dean is not a life. <clears throat> you know, I had had it, students up to year. You're, you're, a, you're the great scapegoat, quite frankly. And every, everything that goes wrong, you get the blame for it. And, you know, I, I'd given it my best shot. I wanted to get back to my research and writing and, and stuff. And so one day, the, <clears throat> the day before my final day on the job as dean, I moved my office to the third floor, had my new office up there as faculty, as professor, <clears throat> and to vacate the, the dean's office for the new dean. And the day before I officially moved, I walked out into the, the lobby area where we keep the coffee and tea and, and so on for the office, and the secretaries all around, and I picked up the decaffeinated coffee jug, and, and, it was, and I, said, I looked at it and said, oh my word, we're out of decaf. And I put it down. I just spoke out loud. I wasn't intending, you know, anything. Just made it, oh, without a decaf. And I was going to walk back into my dean's office when three secretaries jumped up and ran to grab the jug and vied with each other who'd go and make the, you know, go and make the decaf for the dean. And, you know, it felt good. <laughs> The next day, I moved my office upstairs. Now, later in the morning, I came down and went to see if there was any decaf. I picked it up. Oh, no decaf. I wasn't doing it intentionally because I didn't know what was happening. And I, I put it down and I turned away. Then I remembered that I'd done it yesterday and three people had jumped up and I waited. <laughs> Nobody lifted a finger. 
suddenly I realized my role had been taken away. Do you get my point? I wasn't the dean anymore. I had prepared myself for that moment, I thought, so well. I for years have counseled people who were approaching retirement and took them through the disruption that that can often cause and, and the role immersion that then gets yanked away. I, I, I worked with surgeons who were about to quit their job as surgeons and, and bank presidents and, and general managers and plumbers and you know just I'd done a lot of that sort of therapy. I thought I had it all figured out. And that day, I walked back up to my office, and I was in a deep depression. Did I want to be dean? No way. No way. But no longer will three secretaries jump up when there's no decaffeinated coffee in the jug. And I experienced for myself what it means when you take your role away. Especially if you haven't, if you've tried hard not to become too immersed in that role. And then I remembered back a few years when our president had, David Hubbard was our president from the inception of the seminary and he, time came when he retired. I had agreed to stay on for Dean for a few years after he retired, so that we could transition. And our provost, who is the next in line, became the president. He, the provost is the three deans report to him. And the, but he became the president, and so we had to then look for a new provost. And with Rich Mao, our new president, <coughs> took office July 1, that particular year. I remember it well. And he had asked the three deans if the four of us could go and have a little retreat. There's a Catholic monastery up on the hill in Sierra Madre, and uh, it's a lovely little spot, ideal for a retreat. And he wanted us just to take a retreat and go up the, the hillside to, to, to the, uh, the monastery. Well, he, he wanted us to sort of, we, we've got to <clears throat> modify our relationship now. He was our immediate uh, you know, per, person we reported to. Now he was going to be the president, someone else. He, we, he wanted us to, to, to bond with him now as the president uh, and have some time together, talk about it. So we set aside this July 1 that year, now uh, back uh, a few years, 11 years ago now. And so that morning, the three deans, we were all there on time, 8 o'clock, we were going to have breakfast together, and we waited for Rich. Look at the time. And the minutes rolled by, and 20 minutes went by, 30 minutes, 40 minutes went by, no sign of our new president. I sort of made a remark, well, we have the new president, now that he's the boss, he's not going to be very punctual. So what do we do? In, intentionally come 40 minutes late for meetings from now on? Uh, you know, I was a little irked. I'm, I'm a very punctual sort of person. Finally, 45 minutes after we were supposed to meet, Rich, our president, comes in. Flustered, and says, he apologized. I'm, I'm so sorry, please, you know, I, I really am sorry. But I made the mistake of going by my new president's office. I just wanted to, you know, first day as president, just wanted to go sit in the chair and just feel what it was like and maybe see if there's any mail. And I, I, I leaned forward on the desk and the secretary had put some small pile of envelopes there. 
And I looked through it, and then one struck my eye, he said, giving his excuse for why he is late. One struck my eye, he said, it, it read, to the resident Fuller Theological Seminary. You know, you get many to the resident letters. It's sent just to whoever's there. It was one of those to the resident letters. And he, he was on top of the pile. He said, I looked at it, and suddenly something happened. I looked at it, no, not resident, I'm the president. I, I was sort of irked, he said, and then suddenly, as if God had, was speaking to me, I realized this is very, very timely. This is the first moment of my role as president. And the letter says, to the resident. Temporary. Only for a while. And it was as if the letter was saying to me, you know, my child, the God was saying to me, I'm going to let you sit in that chair for a little while. Don't get too comfortable in it. It's only a role. Don't let it define you. Don't let it determine who you are and what you do. Be very careful, my child. This is what Rich said. He's a very wise man. And I've never forgotten that bit of advice. Because then he turned to the three deans and he said, I want to tell you this. I will wear my role loosely. And when the time comes, I will take it off. That's a very wise thing, because again and again and again, I encounter Christian leaders who will not let go of their role. I know a university president, a Christian university president, who would not, when the time came when he should retire and step down, would not leave the post, and the board had to fire him. I know the president of a large parachurch organization who would not step down when the time came. We, we get wrapped up in our role. It defines who we are, you see, and then it becomes a facade. It becomes something we can hide behind. And we stop growing as persons because we're not facing ourselves for who we are. There's a, an opera. I, I forget what it's called now. It's about a priest. In this opera, he sings a song. He's got all these robes. You know, he's putting on one robe after another, one robe after another. It's, it's, our roles are like robes we wear, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, sometimes we talk about it as a hat we wear or a coat we put on. And, and this priest, and, and he's, he's now burdened by the weight of all these robes he's put on. And in, in, as he sings a song, he begins to take it off. One robe off after another, one after another. Until all he, he's standing there bare feet with just his underpants and vest on. And he sings a song. This is all that there is to me. You thrive in your calling when you have a sense of your identity as a person. Stripped of your role. When, when you're able to step out of that role and go to God naked of role, of responsibility, of importance. And when God can meet with you as his child, and the, the danger in Christian leadership is that the role of the leader becomes a barrier 
to self-discovery and to self-growth and self-development. Wear your role loosely. I thought I was doing that and discovered I had to go and do the work all over again. All over again. And then just five years ago when the time came for me to, re- for me to retire as, prof- as a professor and become a senior professor, that was a breeze. That was not hard. Because I had dealt with it back there. It's very subtle. Very subtle. How we become enmeshed in our roles. And I'm going to skip self-care because I'm going to come to that. And I want to close out this evening with some thoughts about the characteristics of the healthy leader. If you're going to finish well in whatever role you fulfill in God's kingdom, and I, I, I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I, you know, there's, there's, I, I don't believe that if you're in full-time ministry, your status is any different to if you're a plumber who serves God. As a, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. I was rather shocked when I got to the United States. Uh, first came there to the United States. I was somewhat shocked by the over-professionalization of ministry. I, I, I've preached since I was 17 years of age. I'm not a pastor. Oh, it's a pastor. I, I'm a, you know. But I, 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 when I was 17, my grandmother discovered I'd just become a Christian. She says, it's time for you to go and preach. I'm going, I'll, talk, I'll, I'll call our, our pastor and I'm, I'm going to tell him, you're ready to preach. And so she calls the retired old guy. He was happy to get someone else in the pool. These were a little church in a retired community. Everybody was old. The other 17-year-old stands up to preach to a bunch of octogenarians, you know. And I, you know what my sermon was? You're all going to hell. You better come to Christ. Let's, you know, these are people that are going to die next week. I better bring them to Christ. And a 17-year-old, you know, telling 80-year-olds that they've got to come to Christ, man. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I was a very passionate evangelist in those days. Uh, I, I preached. And I come to the United States. And you know what? For five years, I never got a single invitation to preach because you're not ordained very professional lives now I get invitations to preach you know everywhere Crystal Cathedral Rick Warren and you know no one bothers whether I'm ordained or not and I, it, it hurt me I, I felt that the kingdom was missing something so I, I'm strong about the priesthood of all believers but so, so what are the characteristics that one should as a, whatever role you play should be focusing and I've listed a few there just to tease you, just to invite you to be thinking about it. I, I've pleaded with you not to separate your spirituality from who you are as a person. But now I'm saying to you, you have to pay attention to who you are as a person. You've got to begin to shape that. You've got to be healthy. Rick Warren, uh, at the time of the centennial celebration, just before that, he was in Australia, just a uh, uh, a few hundred yards ahead of me, he was doing stuff, I was doing stuff. And, and word came back to me that Rick Warren had said some words, and they'd become a mantra for me. He, he said that the, the, the challenge for the next century is not church growth, but church health. And it's healthy churches that will grow. And I've come to believe it. it's healthy churches that will grow. You build a healthy church, it will grow. Because those people become witnesses. 
to their neighbors and, and, and families and others, and, and a church grows. And he, he, he really appealed for us to, to give more attention to church growth, and to, to healthy leaders. And, and it takes a healthy leader to develop a healthy church. To be, to be a member of a church that grows, to, uh, to be healthy, I have to, as a member of that church, work at being healthy. So here are some characteristics just for you to think about. A high level of self-acceptance. I'm working on my next book now, and uh, it's, it's going to be a book on this whole self-esteem stuff. We, we've, we've labeled it and we've created a monster. And what you don't know is that psychology in the United States has totally topsy-turvied the whole self-esteem movement. No such thing. We've labeled it and everybody's looking for it. It doesn't exist. It's a construct. Um, and, and so there's a, a whole new way of looking at the self-esteem phenomenon. Now, there's something, the label means something. I mean, this, we, we have an attitude toward ourselves, right? We feel things about ourselves. But what are we supposed to feel? And the trouble with the self-esteem movement up to this point is that it's a feel-good thing. You've got to feel good about yourself. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. What's feeling good got to do with anything? My word. Well, but, but what we have to foster and develop is, a le- is at a high level of self-acceptance. My, my dear people here, what God wants is us to stop hating ourselves. Because most of us do. Self-acceptance is what is healthy. Self-esteem, loving yourself. My word, don't let me ever hear you preach a sermon on loving yourself. Complete nonsense. Totally erroneous exegesis. You've got to love yourself. Because Jesus told you, love yourself as, as you love your neighbor. You got it all wrong. Jesus, what Jesus is saying, you already love yourself so much, why don't you go and love your neighbor as you love yourself? That's what he was saying. It's a big difference, isn't it? But a high level of self When we are fighting self-rejection, self-hate, we're using up energy, we're being diverted. Satan feeds on that stuff like rats in, 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 a, in, a, in a dumpster. God has transformed your core of your being. He has saved your soul. He's made you a new creature. Can't you have a little respect for it? Stop trying to be what you are not. I, I struggle for years. I've always wanted to be tall, dark, and handsome. Can you believe it? <laughs> like Rick here. <laughs> or John, or whoever. Uh, you know, I was short and, you know, whatever. My wife says I'm handsome, so that's all that matters. And, and it was, it's, it's a battle for me to come to the place where I can stand before God and say, God, you know, where I can stand before people and say, you know what, this is who I am. You either take me for who I am, or I go somewhere else. High level of sex and self-acceptance. My wife is a phenomenal example of that. Uh, secondly, spontaneous in actions and feelings. You're not healthy if you have to control every action or every feeling. Congruent. That's, that's a, a well-known psychological term. That basically means you are on the outside what you are on the inside. That, it's going to take a lot of work, but that's what you've got to do.
appropriately transparent. I'm going to come back to that one. Let me just mention the other two. Free of neurotic guilt and self-punishment. The most self-punishing people on God's earth are those who claim to receive the forgiveness of God. Now, how can you receive his forgiveness and then go punish yourself? It doesn't make sense. And there are some forms of depression that really are forms of self-punishment. Rob yourself. I'm not going to allow myself to feel any pleasure in anything because you see I'm a bad person. Neurotic guilt. No place for that. Wish we had time to talk about neurotic guilt. And then to have the courage to accept your imperfection. Um, have the courage to, make, to, to accept the fact that you will make mistakes. My oldest daughter, when we, she was growing up as a teenager, uh, and I did not get on too well together. We, we had a classic parent-teenage conflict. And from the age of 17, 18, my oldest daughter and I were very alienated. Today we are the dearest of friends. She's one of my closest friends. We've written three books together. Uh, she calls me all the time. She, she, we, just love, I, we just love each other. But back then, it was a real, real problem. And one day, <clears throat> we had a conflict, and I lost my cool. And I screamed, and I shouted, and I threatened, and I, you know. And she, with a smug look on her face. <laughs> you know, like she'd really got me this time. And she said to me, ha, ah, you call yourself a psychologist. <laughs> and you behave like this. And I shouted back at her, my dear girl, in this house, I am not a psychologist. In this house, I am a father. And in case you don't know it, fathers are allowed to be unpredictable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> imperfect. She was saying to me, you've got to be perfect. And I said, one day you'll be a parent and you'll understand what I'm saying. And about 15 years ago, Catherine came to me one day and said, you know, Dad, those years ago you said to me, one day I'll be a parent and I will understand. She says, I understand, Dad. <laughs> you know, we're imperfect. Live with it. But let me close with the appropriately transparent thing. And yet I, I, I give witness to my wife's uh, phenomenal transparency. And I, I want to do so with a closing story. You don't mind stories, I hope, because this time of the night there's not much else that will keep you awake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, I was teaching a doctor of ministry course in Toronto a few years ago. And uh, the, the seminary there, Tyndale, is out in the suburbs a little bit. And Saturday morning we were off and I, we took the train down into Toronto from the suburb. And uh, to, just to have a, a free day in, in, in Toronto, maybe going to have some lunch, do a little shopping. And on the way, going there, the train was, was pretty empty. It's a commuter train. Uh, it was pretty empty. And about 2 o'clock in the afternoon we got on the train and the train was crowded. There wasn't. There was one seat there, and I said to one, my Catherine, honey, go, go and take that seat there, and I'll stand over here. You know, she sat down, in, in, and most people had to stand on these trains, and there were a few seats. So she sat down there, and next to her was a young lady, and I stood here, and I held 
and I <clears throat> sort of, you know, as the train began to move, I dozed a little bit. And I, the next thing I looked up, and she was sitting next to a young lady who had a big parcel in front of her. Now, my wife can make good friends with a total stranger in the lift going from floor ground to floor two. I would usually get in and just, you know, turn my back. But she'll make friends before. She, she's, she is remarkably transparent. And so she had sat down and immediately she turned to the young lady next to her and began a conversation. I, and I thought, oh honey, you know, you're such a gem. Look at you, you, you've already made friends with that girl. And I was just distracted for a little while, looked around. And I looked at her again, I don't know how many minutes later, and the young girl she had started to talk to now was sobbing. And I thought to myself, oh my word, what has my wife done? <laughs> she, she was so, so. Now, the whole of the train was staring at them, watching this thing. And suddenly my embarrassment began to, to rise up, you know. And I, oh, I thought, oh my word, oh, you know. And I don't really know that lady, you know. <laughs> And I, I, would, I turned away for a little bit, and I looked back a few minutes later, and there she was, her arm was around this young girl. She was in her early 30s. And they were both praying out loud on the train in front of everybody. Any of you ever done that? And, you know, by now I am really puzzled. And the next time I look, there she is, and this young this woman, young woman and my wife are hands clasped together, looking at each other, and my wife is intensely saying some things to her. And then she let go and pulled up the parcel because the train stopped. And she had to get off the train. And as she got off the train, she stood on the platform, and the train pulled away, and I watched her, and she stood there, waving as the train pulled out. And the next stop was our stop and we got off. Well, by now I am so, in Afrikaans we say, niskirch. You know, quit. What's going on? What's going on? And so as soon as we get off and we start the way, I say, honey, what was that all about? Then she told this young girl had just arrived the day before in Toronto. She'd run away from, uh, she was living with a guy. He was abusive. He was beating her up. She couldn't take it anymore. So she, she'd, she'd run down, come down to Toronto where nobody knows her. She knew nobody. She'd found a one room that she could rent to live in. It has a little hot plate. It has no cups and saucers or plates or anything. So she had just gone downtown to buy a little pot and a cup and a saucer and a plate and a knife and a fork and a spoon. And now I was going back to that little one room. And my wife, she tell, asked her what she was doing. She shared the story. My, my wife said, you know what? I think God can help you. I can, I, I'm going to pray for you because I believe that God can help you in this. And they, kneel, they prayed right there in blaring front of everybody. And then the girl said to my wife when they were finished, I used to be a Christian. I backslidden. Thank you. I've met with God today. Bye. 
probably never see my wife again. But that young girl I don't think will ever forget my wife. Now, what makes the difference? Total transparent. That I could be Jesus to others. Because I don't feel any embarrassment about that. I don't do it in their face. I'm not obnoxious. I am just authentic. You want to finish well? Work at being authentic. It always works. Thank you, John. Pray together. indeed for speaking to us today even this evening
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord give you a good night's rest. Lord continue to show you his favor. His blessing. His approval. Amen. We'll give a chance to pray for one another tomorrow and Saturday. But in the meantime, I think the bar will be opening through that wall. And we'll see you tomorrow.